people aren't trying to create the next Budweiser. They're trying to create the next IPA that they can sell in their local bar and mm-hmm. and drive a nice little employment world that's self-contained and capable of hiring and keeping people at work in their community. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. One of the revolutionary changes happening in the United States is overlooked by our members of Congress, top business executives, and other thought leaders. It is the rise of localism and the transcendence of something called constitutional localism that is helping to revitalize communities across the country by creating new sources of commerce and meaningful work. On this episode of The Tightrope, we meet with Doug Ross and Morley Winograd. Together with Mike Hayes, they are the authors of the important new book, Healing American Democracy, Going Local. In it, they explain how Americans can shift governing authority away from Washington to localities, so citizens become engaged, new locally owned and operated businesses thrive, and more of us find and do meaningful work in the communities where we want to live. We spoke with Doug Ross and Morley Winograd in September 2018. So Doug Ross and Morley Winograd, welcome to the tightrope. Good to be here, Dan. Thank you for having us. We're we're delighted to be on it, Uh, Dan. Just make sure there's a safety net. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Along with Mike Hayes, who I know very well, uh, Doug and Morley are co-authors of a new book called Healing American Democracy Going Local. So Morley... What is Healing American Democracy about? Essentially, it's about how to make our democracy work in the 21st century. The book details up front why America in the 21st century bears little resemblance to the country we knew in the prior century, and then takes on the difficult question of how in such a, what we call variegated or lumpy, if you will, society with so many divisions, cultural, generational, economic, geographic, gender, etc. With all of those differences, how do you come together to make national decisions in a democracy, especially one of this size and complexity? And what we argue in our book is rather than trying to um, force a one-size-fits-all that might have worked in the days of the New Deal when there was you know, uniform broadcast networks with a uniform national consensus about what is and what isn't. In this age of social media and generational differences and so forth, it's going to be very difficult to come to those kind of uh, national agreements. And therefore, rather than trying to say, well, this one works and for us, and therefore it's got to work for you, we argue that instead we should go to the localities and communities that have been the lifeblood and strength of American democracy since de Tocqueville traveled and wrote his brilliant books on the secret to America's democratic success. And what we want to do is not criticize the diversity of thought in America, but celebrate that diversity and find ways to engage people at the local level in civic and engage them in political and democratic decision-making that will restore their faith in the way democracy should and can work. So Morley, you give me the perfect segue to my question to Doug, which is, why have so many Americans lost their faith in our constitutional democracy? Well, first of all, 
that it exists is concerning. A series of polls really over the last couple decades, this is not something that's just happened in the last year or so, show that as many as 30% of Americans, uh, when asked, prefer a strong leader who doesn't have to deal with Congress or elections, and in some cases even army rule, to our constitutional democracy. And it's been fairly persistent. That's a, that's a pretty big number. It's uh, disproportionately older white voters who've lost faith, but it's across the board. And with millennials, it's not so much that they seem to, you know, are eager for more authoritarian leaders, but they also don't seem to think about democracy as much when people, generations are asked to rate how important living in a democracy is to them, whereas older generations rate it extremely highly. Uh, millennials, you know, they're for it, but it's considerably lower down their list. We think, as Morley was saying, one of the reasons this has happened is that for the last few decades, Washington, the federal government, has not been able to deal with our most pressing problems, you know, affordable health care, declining middle class, wage stagnation, cost of college, climate change. And so people are beginning to say when they look and see their problems not dealt with, a lot of them say democracy doesn't seem to be working. Maybe we have to look at something else. And clearly, that was part of Trump's appeal. He was saying, look, what's going on isn't working for you. I can fix things. Pick me. And so it's really out of this concern for dealing with this loss of faith to, to figure out how to reverse it, that we want to come up with ways to better explain, find a different way to organize government so that democracy is the protector of our freedom to live the way we want and to have a voice in what our government does that's led us to propose constitutional localism specific approach as a way to rebuild this waning public confidence in our constitution. So what is that? What is constitutional localism? How would you define it for our listeners? It's called to shift as much governing authority and resource as possible out of Washington, out of the federal level, down to the community level. Important part of our analysis is the belief that Washington's not deadlocked because somehow our elected officials are not as good as they used to be, but because owing to the freedom we have, positive thing, we've become so incredibly varied or diverse, as Morley said, mm -hmm. over the past half century in terms of values, lifestyle preferences, economic interests, ethnicity. Because we're so diverse, it's become very difficult to put any majorities together at the national level around one-size-fits-all solutions to these pressing problems. So while getting these agreement on these solutions in Washington has become nearly impossible, we look around the country and we see local communities regularly solving problems. They're more soluble at the local level because you can customize them to the needs of that particular community. Citizens have more direct involvement in working toward uh, an answer. And people are really used to working across these lines of party and economics and race that seem to block action in D.C. I, I live in Detroit. Mm -hmm. An example is Detroit's revival. You have a Democratic mayor. You have Republican business leadership. You have a African-American city council. No one ever says, you know, I can't deal with them because they're the other party or we have different values or whatever. We come together and try and solve real problems. Uh, one other thing, Dan, I need to add that's real important. We, okay. we call this constitutional localism. And it's for us, the constitutional part of constitutional localism is critically important. 
By that, we mean the local decisions that we'd like to see made more important have to be made within the framework of our Constitution to protect the rights we've won over the past 250 years. In other words, our call to move governing to the local level can't be seen as an invitation for particular communities to selectively secede from the Constitution. So move more, what it means is wherever we can, though there are things, of course, have to remain at the federal level, get decisions down to the community and make sure they stay within a constitutional framework. And we think that has the potential, those successful experiences of solving real problems, to rebuild confidence in our democracy, which we think is uh, there's no higher priority at this point in our history. So localism, to my understanding, is not a new idea. I remember many years ago in college studying localism as a tenet for or a linchpin for how the Federal Communications Commission was founded in 1934. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea behind that was in order to get a license to have a radio station later on a TV station, you had to agree to serve your community with local news. A portion of your broadcast day had to have at least X number of hours of local news per day. And that seemed to work pretty well. You'd go from one town to another. I, you know, let's say Detroit, where you're from, put on the TV news, and you would see a lot of content about what was going on in the city. But somewhere along the way, I'm guessing probably starting in the late 1970s, early 1980s, around the Reagan administration time, that idea of localism, at least within our communication system, seemed to start breaking down. So morally, why did that happen? Why did we allow that to happen? Well, I, it's first of all, it's a great example. The, the description you gave of the FCC setting national policy, uh, regulating the content, at least part of the content, of local stations in order to earn a national license is a classic example of New Deal thinking. That is, that you could manage government scientifically, that there were experts who could decide what the right answer was, and those experts could not only decide that, but also determine what people heard, what they listened to, when they listened to it, etc., and how they listened to it. All of that, of course, came to a crashing end with the invention of the Internet and the creation of something called social media as opposed to broadcast media. Now, you mentioned the Reagan-era uh, decision to lessen those federal controls in his overall attempt to deregulate the uh, federal government and, in his mind, lessen the burdens of bureaucracy and regulation. But he had, at the time, only a minimal amount of technological capability to do that because you could point to cable television stations that weren't using terrestrial broadcasting but we're still essentially uh, broadcast entities. Their programming was preset. It wasn't determined by listeners. It, it may have varied. There may have been 500 channels of which that nobody watched. Gen Xers may have wanted their MTV cable station and not listened to any, watched anything else. But it was still within the confines of a framework that really began with radio broadcasts in the 1920s. Social media is nothing like that. Social media puts the power of, of what to listen to, what to watch, and what to produce in the hands of consumers. So producers become consumers and vice versa. And that completely destroys the fundamental premise of a top-down solution such as the FCC that you mentioned. Now, that social media architecture wasn't just a entertainment and information architecture. 
it was the way the millennial generation grew up. It's what they came to expect by way of how to operate in their world, to share that which was worth sharing and a lot that wasn't worth sharing with their friends and to not have anybody tell them uh, what they could or could not listen to or when or how or any other subject around that. And so once social media enters the United States and the world's uh, consciousness, you have this complete final breakdown of the New Deal consensus, and everything becomes very localized. Now, we've seen in the last election how dangerous that can be because people can, in fact, simply live within their own bubble, read what other people are saying that to agree with them, read nothing that anybody else is saying or else uh, discount it as fake news. All of those are real challenges that we're only beginning to undertake to address, and we talk about it a little bit in our book and its implications. But the fact of the matter is that it's, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't say, okay, well, now we're going to decide how things are going to be regulated right. in information land or any other part of our uh, sharing economy. And so those decisions are going to be made locally. They are inherently local. The technology is inherently empowering of local decision-making, not just individual decision-making, but groups of people in communities, and whether those are physical communities or virtual communities, and so we think that technology is a major reason why the country now lives the way it lives, operates the way it does, and we need to rethink the principles of American democracy to accommodate that phenomenon rather than try and fight it. And if I can add, Dan, one thing, one of the things we write about in the book is that social media facilitates the ability to spread ideas that are created in a particular local area. One of the things that uh, has really spread across America, and now we're beginning to see play out at the state level and even perhaps the federal level, is the so-called promise programs, which offer uh, high school graduates access to tuition-free college started in Kalamazoo, Michigan as an idea, but as a result of all kinds of networking and so forth, taking advantage of social media, you now have programs in more than 200 communities. You have something like 11 states that have programs of one sort or another, and actually the discussion has migrated to the national level as well. That, we think, exists around a lot of issues that matter to people where there's been no progress at the federal level, and we think it can apply to a lot more that so far have not yet migrated to the local level, but could be dealt with there. The point Doug makes is very important. Social media is a double-edged sword. It can create and reinforce what people tend to call tribalism, hmm. the willingness only to listen and deal with people who are just like you. But it also has the ability to share ideas and spread them across what would otherwise be very difficult boundaries to, to overcome. And so we talk about in the book how to advance, if you will, the positive side of the double-edged sword and look forward to, uh, now that we're awoke, American democracy taking on the challenge of the downside of social media as it impacts democratic decision-making. Well, I wanted to offer you a, an insight from the parental library or laboratory here, parental <laughs> laboratory. So my daughter's 17. I, I believe Pew now lists her as a plural, a Gen Z. That's correct. A Gen Z person. I'm paying particular attention to what's going on in her school and the dialogue that is taking place. Now, she's in a government class right now, and the purpose of that class this year has changed from years past. What they really want to do 
is get that classroom to a point of disagreeing without yelling at each other to respect their differences, but at least allow one another to have their point of view and for you to listen to it. You could disagree with it, but you're not going to cut them off. So lessons in civility. Yes. And I think part of that comes out of urgency. My daughter attended the March on Washington last March in the wake of the Parkland shootings. They demand that their voices be heard. And I think it really is very local. My daughter thinks in terms of not just her community, but her school. That's her daily community. Right. Yeah, she worries about what's going on in the country, but it's what she sees. That makes me think that your frame of localism is going to resonate very nicely. In the book, we talk about millennials' general tendency, as, as we wrote in some of our books on the millennial generation, to think globally but act locally. And in that case, we don't see a big distinction between them and the generation after them that you rightfully called plurals. If anything, plurals more likely to take action locally and think globally. The Parkland student uh, movement on gun violence is the, is the most prominent and cl- great example of all that. And what you described in your 17-year-old's world of, okay, gun violence is a problem. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to fix it at my school level. Now, right. if you go back 30 years or 40 years, People have said, well, I've got to you know, start a petition and organize national uh, drives and go to Congress and lobby. It never occurs to that, the younger generations that that's where you would start. You might finish there. They certainly have been to Washington. They've marched on Washington. But they marched all across the country into localities to change the, the laws at the local level, even if it is a national or global challenge. Well, you just said something very interesting about, about the think, uh, about the the, the global Think globally act locally. Thank you. Thank you. You know, in general, well, uh, go ahead. I, I was going to say um, one of the issues that we raised ourselves in the book is in moving as much as possible to the local level or, you're, you know, talking about your daughter dealing with the gun issue in her local community or in her school proper. We don't see that as giving up on the notion of our belonging to one nation. What we're saying is the identity, the thing that needs to make us all Americans, and which binds us together, even as we are developing different kinds of solution to common problems in different places, is this commitment to certain basic values of freedom, uh, liberty, tolerance, and a shared commitment to the rules of the game to our constitutional democracy. So it is the commitment to the process that makes us Americans. It's the embracing of those ideas and ideals, which holds us together, even as we say, look, we're going to deal with problems of housing one way in Houston, which is different from the way you're going to deal with it in Chicago. I want to turn the discussion a little bit to the idea of scale. And I think it plays nicely off of everything that you guys have just said, which is that localism is really a major driver. You can get a lot done. But for some people, and especially in the workforce where I play, the idea of scale means success. I'm not going to create a job program for a dozen people. I'm going to do it for a thousand people. And why is that so popular? Because every congressperson, every member of the House of Representatives runs for a re-election often on how many jobs he or she has created in her district or his district. So what if we reframe the idea of scale 
turned it on its head. And instead of touting the creation of a thousand jobs, many of which won't get filled because of a skill gap, what about creating tens of jobs, a dozen jobs, 20 jobs that can be managed directly where the talent working the job actually finds success doing the job because he or she is adapting to the skills that they need for that particular job. Morley, I'm wondering if you could start on that one. Well, it's a a great thought. And the phrase you used, turning scale upside down, is exactly the right way to think about it. We talk about in our book that almost all the economic dynamism in the country today is happening at the local level. You have this, you know, overlay of network effect where Facebook and Google and Apple are looking to have the largest number of users in their ecosystem and are driving enormous profits from those economies of scale and network effects. That is not the economic experience that's going on in community after community across the country who are instead focused on things like advanced manufacturing techniques, 3D printing and the like. The use of big data and analytics to figure out what the local assets really are and what are valued. And then building off that local infrastructure for economic revival. Doug mentioned Detroit. It's a good example. But people who we cite in the book, like Bruce Katz, have written about it in major cities across the country. And Deb and James Fallows have written a book called Our Towns, in which they fly across the country to only small and medium-sized communities because they're pilots and they can get there. And it's almost a replication. Uh, you know, they're one of their criteria for an economically up-and-coming local community is it's got its own artisanal beer that it's offering. And so we see that everywhere. It's beginning to be recognized at the national level. Most of the national, certainly not cable coverage, but some national coverage is beginning to notice that the country looks a hell of a lot better if you stand on your head and look at localities. Tom Friedman wrote an article about it uh, for the New York Times, a piece. David Brooks recently wrote two articles, one of which talked extensively about constitutional localism, about how that's really changing and shifting the political dynamic. Lester Holt did a whole series on his NBC nightly news show uh, examining local localities and their economic dynamism. In all of those cases, Dan, we see exactly what you're talking about. People aren't trying to create the next Budweiser. They're trying to create the next IPA that they can sell in their local bar and Mm -hmm. and drive a nice little employment world that's self-contained and capable of hiring and keeping people at work in their community. So I want to continue this thread and ask about how localism could be made a linchpin for success in creating what we call meaningful work, work that is often profound, protects the planet, empowers people, and generally is fun to do. One of the, uh, the hopes, I guess, out of all of this is that as more and more communities take charge of their own destiny and begin to ask the question, what resources do we have that we can develop? whether they're universities, certain kinds of talent, certain legacy in terms of some industries, uh, services that are already there, that we could develop such that we're a place where businesses, increasingly small businesses, can go out into the world and compete in a particular niche. One of the things that has hurt our economy that we also write about is the drop in the formation of new businesses. 
And new businesses provide a number of things. One, it's, it's, of course, a source of new ideas and vitality. It's a chance to be your own boss, which, of course, is tough but can be very meaningful. It's, there's a greater chance that you're going to be concerned at that kind of small business over time with the impact on your own community. So it can turn out to be more responsible than an uh, a international corporation with a headquarters somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world. Mm. So the hope is that as these communities become more the masters of their own economic destiny, we get growing levels of entrepreneurial activity, which should, in terms of the kinds of concerns you've talked about, Dan, hopefully provide more meaningful work, more self-managed work, uh, more interesting work that allows people to stay in the communities where they live and where their families are and not be forced to constantly pick up roots and, and go someplace else. Whether that'll all play out is still hard to say. One of the things we've seen with all this concentration in increasingly fewer very large uh, industries based in this country is uh, less wage competition, probably some one of the causes of wage stagnation, which if we got a more entrepreneurial base again, I think would be good for both workers and people who want to start their own businesses. But that's one of the things we think localism could promote and make happen. Localism is two sides of the same coin. Localism is an economic reality. If you go around the country, that's where the economic dynamism and growth is. In locally focused, locally grown, locally financed activity and industry. So it's an economic reality, that's one side of the coin, but it's also a political necessity, which is a lot of the emphasis of what we talk in our book, in the book, although we do talk about the economic side as well. That economic dynamism at the local level can only be sustained in a country that adheres to democratic practices and rules, norms, if you will. It's it, values, I think, is the word I was looking for. It is that kind of environment in which those kind of businesses thrive. And that's why it's so important from a national adhesion perspective for healing what's currently hurting this country, that we find a political solution that works hand in glove with the economic one. And that's what we believe constitutional localism does. So Morley, I'm going to ask you a question because it ties into some of your past writings with Mike Hayes about millennials, and especially that they are more likely to live in suburbs than they are in inner cities. And that's like a, that's a myth busting that you do to counteract people who think that only millennials live, you know, millennials live in cities right. and not in the burbs. Does the millennial concentration here in the suburbs get in the way of creating jobs in places where there may not be commercial infrastructure? What are your thoughts? Well, this is a fascinating issue, and because we're in the middle of the transformation, we're not always going to know all the answers to what will happen. But what we see happening is sort of what you've described. We've seen this infusion of millennial energy and beliefs and values in suburban America, and because they're still, quote, suburbs in the sense that they're not a big city, people have not been doing a very good job of seeing what that transformation looks like. Now, if you go to your uh, neighborhood mall, you'll see that all the shops are closing and all the restaurants are opening. Malls are becoming an experience, not, a, not necessarily a place to buy things, which you can do on the Internet. Well, a lot of that is driven by millennial buying behaviors and shopping behaviors. 
but it's just a small piece of this transformation of the American suburb that millennials will effectuate over the next several decades. And it will be a decentralized, more community-focused, hopefully more democratic in the sense of sharing and civic engagement kind of world. And what people don't understand is that the old infrastructure sitting in those suburbs, whether it be big shopping malls with no cars in the parking lot, or whether it be an abandoned manufacturing facility uh, that was built on last century's factory models, those things are going to go away and they're going to be replaced by things that are much more decentralized, much more localized, if you will, much less oriented towards scale to pick up on your earlier point, not Mm -hmm. worried about producing 10,000, but but successfully employing 20 people to produce 1,000 and continuing to do that. Those kinds of decentralized, locally based, sensitive to the community and its sustainability kind of activities are what we're going to see. And how it will look and what it'll exactly look like, that's a little harder to say until we're further into the process. But it will be something that people 30, 40 years from now recognize as the new version of how America lives. A couple more questions I wanted to ask. Does localism hold the promise of blowing up our politics, our left-right divide? Are we going to create whole new alliances as a result of working together locally? I think the answer is we are, in fact, seeing that, that the ideological differences that organize uh, politics in Washington don't carry as much meaning uh, when people are trying to figure out how to fix their schools or how to rebuild a, a downtown area or how to deal with skill gaps. It usually doesn't come down to the difference between doing something or not doing something. It's folks sit down across those lines and so, yes, I, as I look at, again, I'll, I'll use Detroit, as I see alliances being built up to deal with different issues, they don't reflect the same ideological divides that you see uh, deadlocking the national government. Even in the free college movement, Dan, you know, it was started at the state level by a Republican governor of Tennessee. Today, there are red states, blue states, and purple states. Purple ones are with Democratic legislature, Republican governors, or vice versa. All have figured out a way to come across those presumed divides and find a way to, to come up with a solution that, that works for their, uh, their students yeah. and their young people. Think about the number of uh, local communities, uh, go, excuse me, local governments that are in fact nonpartisan by design uh, and therefore don't have the typical national divides. But even those which tend to be more in the East and the Midwest that still have a partisan structure you see the ability to cooperate and work across party lines coming to the fore when you're talking about fixing something that's local that everybody sees as a concern, finding a compromise. It's democracy in action, and the fact that it's working is helping us preserve the idea that the founding fathers had in the first place. Indeed, indeed. I'm very hopeful. You guys have filled me with hope, and hopefully you've Uh, done And hopefully you've done the same with our listeners. So I'm, I'm sure many of them are, are asking themselves, this is a great idea, constitutional localism. I want to apply it in my community. I just don't know how. Doug, how can they go about doing it? 
Well, you know, to uh, using our language to paraphrase Al Smith, the, the best way to heal democracy, we think, is with more democracy. So I think the first thing is they have to make the decision as citizens to actually get more involved in those issues that mean something to them and their local communities. And the interesting thing is local change is not dependent on local government, although local government is sometimes are often involved. It's often catalyzed through community groups, through nonprofits, through business associations. So there are lots of ways to get involved. But unless you do, there's no invisible hand that is going to make America work and rebuild our confidence in democracy. I think the second thing is to begin telling their candidates for Congress, for example, their senators, that in order to get their vote, they need them to go to Washington and support moving a whole range of decisions and the dollars with them back to the local level where citizens can make a difference. Uh, we've just seen the federal government vote to move career and technical education dollars from federal control to the state level, but that was only half the way there. Mm. We need it brought down to the local level where local folks know where the skill gaps in their local economies are and how they best can offer meaningful training to people who live there. Another one, uh, we talk about immigration. Get nowhere the last three administrations have not been able to do anything on immigration. Our belief is while the federal government still needs to decide how many immigrants we can take in and have some basic security vetting process, we think that people coming in need uh, a local sponsor. So in L.A., in Houston, uh, probably in Northern Virginia, people would say immigrants We'd like more. Give us immigrants. We need people. We need to grow. We don't have enough people. Bring them in. Other parts of the country may say for either economic or cultural reasons, not right now. We don't want more. If you push that to the local level, you can actually deal with the issue. So if our politicians for either party are not basically willing to support more bottom-up and let go of Washington knows best, vote them out. And finally, I think the important thing to do is obviously buy our book, Healing America, Going Local. But that may be a little self-serving. Uh, you can read more without having to buy the book at golocal.us.com and at Amazon as the full book. But our bottom line is to make democracy work, to heal our confidence in our democracy. There's no getting around the fact that people have to get involved as citizens, and the easiest way to do that is the local level where we can get our hands directly on what affects us most. And Doug, you have the last word. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Doug Ross and Morley Winograd, thank you so much for walking the tightrope with us today. As I said at the beginning, together with Mike Hayes, Doug and Morley are co-authors of Healing American Democracy Going Local, which, as Morley pointed out, is available at Amazon.com in both paperback and ebook editions. Buy your copy today. Gentlemen, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Our thanks to Doug Ross and Morley Winograd, who, together with Mike Hayes, are authors of Healing American Democracy, Going Local, for walking the tightrope with us. We agree that localism provides opportunities for us to do the work of our dreams, meaningful work, in the communities where we want to live. Check out past episodes on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. 
And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments. Like listener Ellen W., who writes, Your topics and guests are interesting and give me hope of doing meaningful work. Well, thank you, Ellen W. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list by visiting dansmolin.com. And please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. 